0: Maloni, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suiswiki. Coming up, Vanuatu on high alert as tropical cyclone Lola makes landfall. Also,
1: It was a missed opportunity for him to press upon the the Australian government.
0: Fiji's Prime Minister's comments on fossil fuel is a slap in the face for Pacific climate advocates. And later, He
2: was just prolific in his thinking, forward thinking, and just a real cornerstone, cornerstone for Pacific, really.
0: The late Professor Epilehau Offa is remembered for his writing. <music> Reports are coming in of significant widespread damage in Vanuatu's Panama and Malampa province, where cyclone Lola first made landfall on Tuesday. Severe cyclone Lola has swept through Vanuatu at a time where the country was still recovering from twin cyclones in March. Alicia Foon has more. While the full extent of damage is
3: still emerging... The head of World Vision Vanuatu, Kendra Derso, is expecting the worst. In March, Vanuatu was battered by back-to-back severe cyclones that caused widespread damage.
4: I can very confidently say that there will be a significant loss of shelter, livelihoods, as well as food scarcity due to the compounding impacts of already having had two cyclones with agriculture just bouncing back and now being destroyed again so early in the cyclone season. Loss of life being sort of the worst uh, possible outcome of a cyclone. So we'll be wanting to respond to that as quickly as possible
3: she says due to communication lines being down, people in Pentecost have been unreachable.
4: There have been several unverified Facebook posts uh, coming through our networks um, saying that destruction there is bad or worse than it was in Tropical Cyclone Herald. I witnessed that destruction firsthand and it was, I mean, devastating. It looked like the island had been put through a blender.
3: Cyclone Lola first affected the northern islands in Vanuatu when it was a Category 5 and 4 cyclone, with gusts reaching 320 kilometres per hour. It is now downgraded to a Category 3 cyclone, with gusts still reaching up to 200 kilometres per hour. UNICEF's Vanuatu field officer says some people have had a terrifying night.
5: Probably uh, among them uh, a big number of the houses that have been uh, totally or partially damaged. So that's very, very scary. They are a
6: terrifying night.
3: Eric Dupere from Port Vila says people would have likely had to evacuate to cyclone-proof buildings while it was passing over. Vanuatu's prime minister says schools and homes are still recovering from past cyclones. Prime Minister Shaleo Salwai told Morning Report he knows Lola is going to be very hard for people.
1: Many of uh, the houses, and especially schools, are not yet repaired. The school is still operating in the temporary shelters.
3: Lola is tracking towards New Caledonia after Vanuatu, but is expected to be a Category 1 cyclone when it hits.
0: Papua New Guinea police say two MPs and a former governor have allegedly been involved in the trade in illegal guns. These weapons are often used in tribal fighting and other criminal activity, and hundreds of people have been killed over the years. Police say there's a rise in the illegal weapons trade in the highlands, particularly in Western Highlands and Chiwaka province. Politicians and members of the disciplinary forces are also said to be involved. Don Wiseman asked our PNG correspondent Scott Waire if police have released details fleshing out these claims.
5: Nothing specific as yet, but generally, Don, it's an open secret that there are arms being supplied to tribal groups, in in the highlands in particular, but in other parts of the country as well. So if if you are on the ground and if you talk to people who are in possession of those weapons, they will basically tell you where the, the weapons are coming from. And it's, as I said, not something that is hidden when you go into the villages and ask them, where did you get this weapon? Who's the sponsor of those weapons? The difficulty is the actual reporting of it and finding the evidence linking the weapons to the the sponsors of those weapons and and the the people who actually bring in those weapons and and pay for them, uh, pay for the weapons and the bullets.
6: Is this though, in terms of politicians being involved and police being involved, is this merely at this point speculation by police?
5: Yes. I mean, if you were to look for official sources and and some attribution as to where where the weapons are coming from, where, where this, the allegations are coming from. That would be difficult, as I said, finding the evidence to pin them down. But people within law enforcement have some idea, or at least know where the weapons are coming from. And a, a lot of it's coming from down south across the border, from the Indonesian border coming in, and some stolen from government armories. And there have been instances where weapons... Police weapons, defence force weapons have been recovered over the years and some of those weapons have been used against service members working in in hotspots in the islands.
6: Do they come in singly or are they coming in 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 large boxes and dozens or a hundred at a time?
5: Yes, I've personally covered stories where they've, brought in weapons in, in batches. So the ones I saw were in batches of six, some batches of four. And, and good quality weapons. These are not rusted weapons that you know you see on Facebook that people are holding. No, these are weapons that have, have been brought with the intention of selling to those who have the money to pay for it. There are also from sources that I've spoken to criminal elements that are actually actively trading as, as was reported by the Post-Korea. Elements that are actively trading in weapons and bullets, and, and these are rifles, pistols, sidearms.
6: How do the ordinary people in the Highlands, how do they feel about the presence of these guns in the community? Do they feel, to to use the sort of language that the NRA might use, do they feel protected by it, or are they fearful of these yes. guns?
5: A frightening situation for many people in the villages especially for the women and children who have no means of protecting themselves against people who are armed and dangerous and that has been one of the primary concerns that was expressed after the kidnapping of the anthropologists and the the women that were later rescued that the weapons that were used in those crimes had political sponsors and and they made no bones about it they expressed it very clearly uh, unfortunately it wasn't reported as such so it, it's It's a situation like that that puts women and children especially in danger. And it becomes more pronounced during election periods where the guns are used to intimidate. A lot of the focus is on the highlands, but it's not just in the highlands. There are pockets of areas around the country where illegal weapons are also used in that manner.
6: Yes, and you make a reference to the academic who was kidnapped along with a number of other people at the beginning of the year. That kidnapping was by, they were teenagers, weren't they mostly?
5: Yeah, they were very young people very, very young uh, yet teenagers, basically, uh, and, and led by a few adults, and they were also armed in that manner that we're discussing.
6: Alright, so you've been around a while. How is PNG going to get on top of this problem?
5: The solutions, well, at least some of the solutions are there. It's being presented by the guns committee report that was previously headed by Major General Jerry Singerok, and he's frustrated that many of the recommendations that he's put forward haven't been implemented. Some of it has, some of it hasn't. The government recently introduced amendments to the laws and gives Uh, sentence life sentences to people who are in possession of illegal weapons uh, which is a positive step but the people who carry the guns openly in in places around Papua New Guinea still carry them openly sometimes in the presence of police they use them in tribal fights and and police see them and you know saying these things sounds easy but actually going into those villages finding the people who possess the weapons and actually arresting them with support from the community is difficult.
0: Pacific Islands Climate Action Network has labelled Fiji's Prime Minister's recent comments on fossil fuel in Australia harmful and destructive. When asked whether Pacific leaders will use next month's Pacific Islands Forum Leaders meeting in Rarotonga to put pressure on Australia to shut down its fossil fuel industry, Sitiveni Rambuka said the Pacific is realistic about its demands. He also said Australia's fossil fuel industries cannot be shut down immediately. Regional Coordinator Lavitana Langisiru told Lydia Lewis the comments have come as a shock.
1: His comments were destructive to the hard work over the years that has been put in by Pacific Civil Society and the climate movement in the region, as well as our our leaders in the region, uh, who have been pushing for higher ambition, uh, including uh, securing the 1.5 goal in, uh, in, in Paris. And, uh, and we'll only be able to achieve that Paris goal if we were to face out, uh, fossil fuel infrastructures, um, immediately, including, uh, putting an end to fossil fuel subsidies. And his comments are made in Australia, you know, um, giving some leeway to the Australian government. Um, is, uh, you know, is uh, music to the uh, fossil fuel industry in Australia uh, because, uh, you know, it it kind of signals that uh, the Pacific is okay with, uh, you know, status
3: quo. You said in particular that Australia's fossil fuel industry could not be shut down immediately. What was your reaction to that?
1: Well, you know, the the data suggests that if we continue with the uh, the current trajectory, uh, we are bound to uh, to exceed our you know our carbon budgets, and uh, uh, of course, the Pacific is at the forefront of climate uh, climate impacts and the climate crisis. So, I think uh, I'm, I'm not sure whether he was advised, but uh, certainly it was ill advised um, comments that he had provided because the australia has the um uh, the resources uh to you know to transition away from fossil fuel and most of the fossil fuel that's being produced in australia is mainly for export so they um, you know they're exporting coal and uh, uh, oil and gas so um we We certainly disagree with with these comments. We think that Australia can put an end to any new fossil fuel projects or any new fossil fuel infrastructure, and it must put an end as well to uh, fossil fuel subsidies that's propping up the fossil fuel um, um, industry. Um, so yes, we are, we are we're in total um, disagreement with these comments.
3: And also Pacific leaders have met with the United States as well recently. There's been so many calls by Pacific leaders around fossil fuels and, and to change the way that they are acting. And yet Pacific nations are still partnering with the US and China and the UK who who haven't got commitments to phase out fossil fuels.
1: Mm. Well, uh, yes, yeah, certainly, I, I think um, that was a uh, missed opportunity to, to impress upon um, the U.S. government the importance of you know, in- increasing their climate ambition, including the fossil fuel phase out, the delivery of much needed climate finance for developed, developing countries. And uh, again, this was quite similar to the to this meeting that he had with the Australian Prime Minister. It was a missed an, a missed opportunity for him to press upon the the Australian government the existential threat of climate change uh, that the Pacific is facing, and the importance of these developed countries to act and to deliver on their promises, including you know um, the hundred billion climate finance that they you know, they they still fail to have mobilized till today. So that being said, the the other, I think, issue that we have with his recent statement in Australia was that, you know, he was implying, I mean, his comments imply that he was speaking for the Pacific. No, he was saying we in the Pacific, but you know, the Pacific, there are other Pacific Island governments that they, are doing so much more, including, you know, the government of Vanuatu is seeking an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice. They've come out with a very strong and ambitious uh, national determined contribution, NDCs. Um, and, and they're doing so much more um, to to, you know, to increase their climate goals domestically and and they're urging the rest of the world, including these, you know, developed countries, the US, Europe and Australia, to do the same. They're leading the charge, they are displaying, you know, great climate leadership. And Rambuka's comments was problematic in that you know, it was kind of a slap in the face of the hardy you know, the the hard work that's been put in by uh Pacific leaders both past and present.
0: Late poet, writer and academic Ebeli Hau'ofa has been awarded a posthumous honorary doctorate from the University of Auckland. The Tongan Fijian professor is widely regarded among Pacifica academics for his contributions to Pacific literature. His works, such as his novel Tales of the Tekongs are read as part of secondary school curriculums throughout the Pacific. Phinao Whanua spoke with Auckland University Pacific Pro Vice-Chancellor Jemima tietia about the legacy of e peli hau'ofa.
2: Have you ever met e peli hau'ofa? Could you describe how much he's contributed to Pacific literature? Yes, yes. Um, unfortunately, I haven't had the privilege, I didn't have the privilege of, of meeting him in person, but I'm, um, Um, very aware of his writings, which have, you know, they've gained so much traction across the region. Um, One of the most infamous pieces of his was Our Sea of Islands, where, you know, he really highlighted that, um, you know, the Oceania wasn't merely just an ocean full of islands, but rather was a sea sea of islands and where land normally... uh, You know disconnects people um and and separates um entities or bodies um the sea in actual fact connects connects us and connects uh the pacific and so it was this oneness and i guess one of the things that really blew my mind as an undergraduate student was just as an indigenization and as reclaiming of of who we are as pacific and He really, um, he really pushed the message that although small islands, you know, uh, small islands in this vast ocean, uh, the biggest ocean on the globe, that we shouldn't be confined geographically. We're small, but our mentality shouldn't be confined to the smallness. And so, I guess his writings just really, really, you know, fired up the bellies of of our people. And that um, we, are, we are we possess this greatness, um, and so you know that those are writings that we should celebrate, writings that we should stand on, and um, yeah, his, he was just prolific in his thinking, forward thinking, and just a real cornerstone uh, cornerstone for Pacific, really. The posthumous graduation ceremony. Could you describe it? We, we held a, um, a ceremony in, in his honour, um, as any um, ceremony is conducted in our university. He was given that privilege. But the poignant thing about that ceremony is that it was Tongan breathed, infused. We shared with the community. We shared with his family. Um, and we flew his son over to receive it on his behalf, at Epele Hawawasi'i. And um, who was accompanied by his wife and his younger child, and it was just overwhelmingly beautiful. Uh, Dr. Mene Taumoi Tamuifalau, Taw- who is a, a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland, um, she led led all the um, the arrangements around that and her church. Um, Sione Duitahi, who is also a relation of his, was there to celebrate with us. Uh, Dr. Sione. Sione Mau, who is one of our lecturers in mathematics at the University of Auckland. So it was just an auspicious occasion and a very, very humbling, but it really just sent a clear message that, you know, we have a place our, 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 our scholarship and our presence um, is very much felt across the Pacific region and, and as a university we wanted to, to highlight that and just send a, a message that, you know, a professor of that magnitude is someone that should never go under the radar. And I'm just, I'm just so proud that we were able to recognise him and and award him that honour. With posthumous degrees, what's the process involved in determining when and who should get a posthumous degree? Sure. So this. Um, in commemoration of our 140 years, this was a one-off celebration um, and the criteria around awarding a posthumous um, degree was that it had to be someone that was uh, had a relationship with the university but had not graduated from our university before and had never, uh, whether it was an undergraduate de- uh, degree or a diploma um, or a postgraduate degree, he had never, Never, um, we've never had the privilege to have uh, um, had him within our within our academy, and so yeah, and and you know this was probably the closest we could get to to just really celebrating the legacy that he left behind and the minds that he's transformed. <laughs>
0: That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnz.i.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, Toha